Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Jesus is our Savior and Lord. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading comes from John 12, 1 through 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Our reading continues in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, John, for reading our passage today. Now, Jesus is our Savior, and Jesus is our Lord. He died to save us, and he reigns to rule over us. Now, both of these truths are important. And both of these truths we see in these two back-to-back -back stories that John read to us. The first story is about pouring out perfume in praise to our Savior. The second story is about lifting up palms in pledge to our Lord. Now these two actions, or these actions in these two stories, they spring from a single story, the story that we looked at last week. Last week we were in the previous chapter, John chapter 11, where we see Jesus' miraculous work of raising his best friend Lazarus from the dead. And did you notice how that miraculous event prompted the two stories that we're looking at today? Look at verse 1. It says that Mary performed a lavish act of worship at a banquet honoring what Jesus had done for Lazarus. And then in verses 17, uh, verses 17 and 18, we see that the crowd that hailed Jesus as king was prompted to do so by what they had seen or at least what they had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. These two stories that we're looking at this week both spring up from the miraculous story that we looked at last week. But one story this week 
points out how Jesus is our Savior. And the other story points out how Jesus is our Lord. We need to, to not miss the meaning of both of these stories, or we're going to end up missing the meaning of who Jesus is. And so we need to make three commitments today. If you've got your sermon notes, write this down. First of all, I will receive him as the Savior who died for me. In the first story, a banquet was being held in honor of Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. And sometime during that banquet, one of the two sisters of Lazarus, Mary, took expensive perfume, broke open the jar, and poured the entire contents out on Jesus, wiping up the excess ointment from his feet with her own hair. Now, in the first century world, I'm sure you know this, people didn't sit at a table with their feet under the table. They reclined at a table. It was a low table. They would lean on their left elbow. They would reach for the food with their right hand, and their feet then would be on the ground stretched out behind them. And that's why it was so easy for Mary to come behind Jesus and anoint him with this perfume all over his feet. Now, the Gospel of John says she anointed his feet. Matthew and Mark say that she anointed his head. Considering the sheer amount of perfume that was poured out, it was likely his entire body that received this type of treatment. John called it nard, pure nard, which would have come from uh, the exotic location of India. And uh, we read, as we continue to read in the story, we find that this was an expensive amount of perfume. If she had sold it, it would have been equal to a year's wage for a working man. Now, it's at this point that Judas shows up for the first time in the Gospel of John. He was the keeper of the common purse, the common fund of, of the group. And um, the, the Bible lets us know here that he was uh, aghast that this amount of perfume would have been wasted on Jesus' feet when if it had been sold, an entire year's wage of working man could have gone into this common purse and they could have helped the poor. As we see, he wasn't so interested in helping the poor as he was in helping, interested in helping himself. But it's at this point that Jesus says something interesting. He says, the poor you have with you always, but you will not always have me. Now, at first, this seems like Jesus is indifferent to the plight of the poor, or he is insensitive to people who want to be generous to the poor, but nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, everything we see about Jesus in the four Gospels, here is somebody who is a champion of the downtrodden. In fact, the best way that you could really understand this is the poor you have with you always, and so you have countless opportunities to help them, and you should, but you will not always have me, so leave Mary alone. She has done a good thing. But notice how it is worded in verse 7. Look at it again. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Dead bodies were often perfumed. It was an act of honoring the loved one, but it also had a practical matter of sort of masking over the smell of decay at a funeral. But notice here that Jesus says, it was intended that this be set aside for the day of my burial. It was intended. He did not say Mary intended this. It was said in the, pass, in the passive voice, it was intended. And anytime, or most often in the Bible, when you don't see an actor uh, who's performing a particular action of a verb, and that verb is put in the past tense, it is by what the scholars call the divine passive. In other words, it was a, an indirect way of referring to God. God was doing the action, or in this sense, God was doing the intention. 
So Mary may have intended this perfume for an entirely different reason. Mary may have intended this perfume to be poured out on Jesus just as an act of thanks, as an act of gratitude for Jesus raising her brother from the dead. But we've often seen through our study of the Gospel of John across these last months, we have seen that there is at one level an action taking place and on a higher plane there's a different purpose or intent or meaning for that action. And so I think that's what's taking place here. Mary may have well intended this act to be simply an act of gratitude, of lavish praise for Jesus raising her brother from the dead. But on a higher plane, God intended it for a different, for a different purpose. All along, Mary was saving this perfume for something special, but all along, God was superintending that process so that he could see to it that his son's body was prepared for burial at this point. You need to understand where we're at in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 12, which means we're only halfway through the chapters of our study through the Gospel of John. But at John chapter 12, we're only a week away from Jesus' crucifixion. So here is Jesus on this very likely a Saturday night banquet in honor of him raising Lazarus from the dead. What's going to take place only a week away the next Saturday night? Jesus is going to be dead, and his body is going to be in a tomb. And his body is going to be covered in spices from two rich men. We're going to find this when we get to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, two wealthy Jewish men and influential Jewish men, they come to Pilate and ask for the dead body of Jesus that they could take it down from the cross and prepare it for burial and place it in, in, a, in a tomb that Joseph himself had. And we find in John chapter 19, verse 39, that they use, quote, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. In other words, they were preparing this body as if they were preparing the body of a king. Now, Jesus knew that this was going to take place a week later. His body was going to be prepared with these abundance of spices. And so as this fragrance of Mary's perfume is wafting through the house, Jesus has his own burial in mind. And he said it was intended that she have this set aside to prepare my body for burial. So his death was on his mind as this fragrance filled the entire house. And we know what Jesus's death meant to him. It's not laid out explicitly in John chapter 12, but it's laid out in so many other places in the Bible. For example, take a look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? A ransom is a price you pay so that somebody else can go free. And so Jesus was saying that you and I are not free. We are in bondage. We are in chains because of our sin and because of the eternal consequences do our sin. And believing in Jesus then means seeing things the way he saw things. And here's how Jesus sees things when it comes to your life. He sees you as a sinner so helpless. He sees me as a sinner so helpless that you and I need somebody to come and pay that ransom ourselves. So our sin offends a holy God and and confession and, and, and repentance means to just simply admit that we see things now the way Jesus saw things, that we are in need of his 
uh, act on our behalf to make things right. You know, some of us, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, and if we're really honest with ourselves, we ask, did it really take all that to set me right with God? I mean, I'm not that bad, am I? But now here's the, here's the profound thing. As you reflect on the cross of Christ, as you meditate over the death of Christ, here's what happens. At the same time, you discover how sinful and flawed you really are, and yet how deeply loved and accepted you really are at the same time. Not one or the other, not one after the other, but both at the same time and perpetually forever. We look at the cross of Christ and we discover, maybe for the first time, how flawed we are and how sinful we are before the eyes of a holy God, and yet we also discover how accepted and welcomed we are by that same God. Now you tell me, is there any other religion on this earth Is there any other psychological therapy on this earth that is going to tell you both the bad news and the good news about yourself at the same time? No, only in Christianity. You see, there are those therapies, there are those systems of thought that want to say you are flawed, you are ruined, you are ugly in your moral choices, and you better straighten up and fly right. On the other hand, there are those who say, yeah, there are things that you've done wrong, but it's not your fault. It's the chemical composition of your brain. It's the way your parents raised you. It's the society, the way it's structured and the way you have to live within the society. It's not your fault. But what we find in the gospel, what we find in the cross, what we find in the death of Jesus is that we are flawed, that we are sinful in greater ways than we ever imagined before, and yet at the same time we are loved and accepted in more astonishing ways than we ever thought before. Both of those things are true at the same time, and so we need to make this commitment this morning. I will receive him as the Savior who died for me. But there's something else that we need to commit to as well, so write this down. I will receive him as the Lord who reigns over me. He is the Savior who died for me, but he is also the Lord who reigns over me. The morning after the banquet, Jesus began to make his way the three miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. And the crowds began to follow him with increasing cheers. Now, what we find in this passage is it is the week before Passover. And so a lot of pilgrims have come into Jerusalem already to prepare themselves for Passover, and even more will come as the week rolls along. So much so that Jerusalem, which at the time was a population of about 200,000, would swell to over a million by the time Passover celebrations got underway. And uh, these people saw Jesus coming, and they had personally witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, or they had heard about it. And so when they saw Jesus approaching the gates of Jerusalem, they began to celebrate, as we find in verse 13. They lifted up the chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us now, save us now. And they began to celebrate Jesus by saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And then they did something that seems unusual to us. They cut off palm branches and began to wave them over their heads in celebration of the arrival of Jesus. This doesn't seem all that strange, though, when you understand something about Hebrew history. It was only 170 years before this time uh, when the Maccabean priests revolted against Greek rule, and they took over Jerusalem again. They purified the temple again for worship, 
And as the Maccabeans came in for celebration, what did the people do? They they waved palm branches in celebration that God was ruling through this Maccabean priesthood. Now here comes Jesus. And what do they do? They're waving these palm branches. Why? Because they saw him as a liberator coming in to set them free, just as the Maccabeans had done 170 years earlier. I think all of us have seen those pictures or seen those news reels from World War II when um, uh, allied forces would go into the Polish towns or the French towns that had once been uh, ruled by the Germans and now the allied forces had liberated those towns and the people were received as liberators. They'd come out onto the street and they would wave flags in celebration of these allied liberators that had come in. That's the image that we're seeing in John chapter 12. These palm branches are raised as an act of Jewish nationalism, celebrating that the liberator uh, uh, of, of Jerusalem had finally come in. Now, we've seen in our study through the Gospel of John several times, the people try to make Jesus king. They try to recognize Jesus as king. And what does he do? Up to, that, up to this point, he has rejected every overture to make him king. So, for example, several months ago when we were studying John chapter 6, we saw this. In John chapter 6, Jesus was kind of like a, a second Moses who had, uh, back in the days of the first Moses, he had, uh, had been the liberator who had freed them from Egyptian bondage. And they got out into the wilderness and through the, the uh, intervention of Moses, manna came into the wilderness to to, to rescue them from hunger. And, and so in John chapter 6, Jesus had miraculously fed a multitude with uh, miraculously multiplying a boy's sack lunch of a few loaves and a few fish. And people saw Jesus as a, a new Moses, a new liberator, and they tried to make him king right then. And what happened? In John chapter 6, he sends the crowds away forcibly one direction. He sends his disciples in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. He himself, he goes up on a mountain to pray and to meditate. He has rejected their claim of kingship at this point. But it wasn't because they were wrong. It was just the wrong timing. Because here in John chapter 12, the crowds want to hail him as king. And what does Jesus do? He accepts their claims. How do we know he accepts their claims? Because the manner with which he rides into Jerusalem. He gets on the back of a donkey and he heads into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Now, why do I say that this was Jesus accepting their claims of him as king? Because that's the way the ancient kings of Israel would ride into Jerusalem for their day of coronation. One of the most famous examples of that was Solomon. After the, king, after the uh, days of King David, when King David died, there was some dispute over who would be in charge of the kingdom. And there were a group of people who established one king and put him on the throne in Jerusalem. And then they saw that the one that David had chosen as king, his son Solomon, riding on the back of a donkey into the gates of Jerusalem, relentlessly, deliberately to claim the kingship. Now, everybody in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, they were Bible readers. They understood that story. They knew that just as in the days of Solomon, they were pretenders in Jerusalem claiming to be in charge of God's people. But here comes the true king. How do they know? Because he's riding on the back of a donkey, just as Solomon did, and just as the other ancient kings did when they came in to receive their coronation. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus accepted their claims of his kingship 
even though he knew how flawed and fleeting their claims were. Their claims were flawed because it was so wrapped up in Jewish nationalism. Their claims of him as king were all wrapped up in what they wanted him to be as king and their agenda, their political agenda of what they wanted him to be as king. And because their view of his kingship was so flawed, it was also so fleeting. Just a few verses after the two stories we're looking at today, we're going to see this next week, the people begin to sour on him as king because he starts talking about crucifixion, he starts talking about death, he starts talking about going away, and this isn't their idea of a Messiah. So much so that by the end of this week, many of those who hailed him as king would call for his crucifixion. But what they said about him as he rode in Jerusalem was true, even though some of them no longer believed it was true by the end of the week. And this is something for you to believe as well. And this is something for you to keep on believing as well. Keep on believing it even when he doesn't meet your demands. Keep on believing it even when he doesn't align with your earthly agendas. Keep on believing it even when he tells you to do some things that at first you don't want to do. He is king. And so therefore we need to recognize every one of his commands. He is king. And that means that we have to take seriously his opinion on any and every subject what to do with our money, how to treat our marriage partner, how to treat those who mistreat us, how to deal with setbacks and disappointments, what to do with our private thought life, and a countless number of other actions and attitudes that Jesus happens to have an opinion on. Like Abraham Kuyper famously put it in the late 1800s, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. Being a Christian, then, is not only about receiving forgiveness. Being a Christian is about accepting direction. And so you and I today need to make this commitment. I receive him as the Savior who died for me, but we also need to make this commitment. I receive him as the Lord who reigns over me. It's not one or the other. It's not one and then later on, then the other. It is both at the same time and forever. And that's why we need to make this third commitment. Write this down. I will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's the way the big fisherman put it. In the very last book, the very last chapter, the very last verse that he ever wrote anything to us, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice there are two things about Jesus there, and there are two ways we encounter those two things about Jesus. The two things about Jesus are he is our Lord and our Savior. The two ways we encounter those two things about Jesus is we grow in grace and the knowledge of those two things. So first of all, there are two things about Jesus. He is our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. He is both and both at the same time. We can't just focus on his forgiveness without making any real effort to follow him as king. On the other hand, we can't just make Christianity all about his demands without also recognizing that we are helpless and in need of a savior. Listen, if you receive Jesus as your savior and you don't take seriously that he is your king, you're going to make Christianity into this weak, limp thing that can't bring any real change in your life. 
On the other hand, if you receive Jesus as your king, but you don't understand how he can really be your savior, why you need him to be your savior, what you're going to do is you're going to crumble under, crumple under the, 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 the relentless demands that Jesus places upon you as king. So there are two things to know about Jesus. He is our Lord and he is our Savior. And Simon Peter says that there are two ways to encounter these things about Jesus. We're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge. We're to grow in knowledge. We're to learn more and more about what his cross means for us. We're to learn more and more about what it means for him to be boss over our lives. Gaining knowledge means gaining facts, gaining truth, reading about these things, reflecting on these things. But we're not only to grow in knowledge of these things, we're to grow in the grace of these things. And in this instance, what that means is you're to encounter these things. You're to experience these things in all the circumstances of life as you deal with your joys as well as you deal with your sorrows, as you deal with your setbacks as well as you deal with your successes, you are to experience what it means for Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. You to experience the grace of that. And so what we need to uh, gather and what we need to understand about this is he is our Savior and he is our Lord, and we're to grow in the knowledge of that, and we're to grow in the experiential grace of that. I wonder... When people around you look at you, when people around you spend time with you, do they smell the perfume and do they see the palms? This is the imagery that I want to leave you with as we wrap up this story today. I want this to linger in your mind, the smell of the perfume and the sight of the palms. Verse 3, the house was filled with a fragrance of the perfume. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Perfume and palms. Jesus said Mary had anointed his body for burial and the way that John describes it, everyone in the house knew what Mary had done and how Jesus had interpreted it because the fragrance filled the whole house. I wonder, is that the way it is with your life? After people have spent time with you, is the fragrance of what you think of Jesus's sacrificial death for you, is it known? When you talk about your life, is Jesus more famous or are you more famous? When people spend time with you after they've spent time with you, have they been pointed to the cross? Do people understand how much you appreciate his sacrificial death for you? And that is the only thing that you're ever counting on to give you a right relationship with God? Do people know that about you after they spend time with you? It ought to fill your life like the fragrance of perfume. On the other hand, after Mary's perfume comes these palms of pledge. The very next day, people wave these palms in pledging allegiance and loyalty to what Jesus meant to them. Is that the way it is with your life? After people spend time with you, are you so bold and unashamed about your loyalty to Jesus, your commitment to him? Is your life a life of greater godliness because you're obeying him in a more and more consistent way? May people smell the perfume of our praise to Jesus for saving us. And may people see the palms that we wave and pledge in our commitment to him.
as our King and our Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to know the fact of it, what it means, but to help also help us, Lord, experience the reality of it, to live in the grace of it every day. Thank you for saving us by the death of your Son. May our wonder and gratitude for that be as fragrant as perfume. And thank you for leading us by the reign and rule of your Son. May our commitment to him be as open and bold and unashamed as if we were waving the banner of his kingdom above us. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled, Connecting Your World to Jesus. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.